So please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6 as we continue our study in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, we will be looking at the first seven verses this morning. Before we do so, let's go to the Lord in prayer again and ask for His help with the text. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Word, we need help with it because we are a people, like we will read in this passage, we are a people of unclean lips. We are a people of unclean thoughts and motivations. When we read your word, it's so easy for us to want to put ourselves on your throne or to somehow make ourselves holier than we are. And so, Lord, we pray that as we read your word and hear from it today, that we would not do that, but instead we would see ourselves as we are and that we would run to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I read through this, and actually even as I prepared for to study this book, this is the one one of the prevailing images that continued to come at me was this book that I read as a kid, and I've read several times since then, and probably very familiar to you. It's called The Lord of the Flies, and uh, it's a highly recommended book, but it's probably one for you know teenagers more so than younger kids. And I'll try not to spoil it in my illustration. But there's a group of boys, and they are stranded on an island, and, and it's all boys, all kids, no adults. And at first, they're having a lot of fun, and they're, you know, they're kind of enjoying the fact that there's no adults there, and they're learning how to get food and all this stuff and having fun. But eventually, it gets a little bit um, crazy, just to put it mildly, a little wild. And all of this crazy and this wildness culminates at the end of the book, and there's this scene on the beach. And again, I'm not going to tell you exactly what the boys see because I don't want to give it all away, but when they see it, it shatters their current existence. It completely takes them out, brings them back to the reality of their situation. All of a sudden, they're confronted to, with the fact of how wild they had become on the island. And they see themselves against something that represents all that is clean and right and good in their world. And their only response is just to weep uncontrollably. As we have been working through the book of Isaiah, the people of Judah could definitely be classified as wild, as we've been seeing that over and over. In our text last week, the prophet refers to the people as wild grapes, or as I said, the one translation would be stink fruit. Though things had begun in a mostly nice kind of way for the people of Israel, as you read through, they slowly began to degenerate and culminates and come into Isaiah's time. In our text today, Isaiah is going to be officially called to the ministry. And he kind of recounts that. And and the ministry that Isaiah is given is to send a message to the people that they have become wild and they deserve the judgment of the Lord. And that judgment is coming. This is probably one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament that we're coming to today, and it carries with it a lot of baggage. Of course, the text itself doesn't carry any baggage, but our own hearts concerning the text do. And we could easily pass it off as, oh yeah, I know that passage, and then just kind of wait till the end until we get to things that we don't really know about. 
But then we have to come up against the idea that God's Word is inexhaustible. Our need to learn it never changes. Our need to know from it never changes. We will always need to know more from God's Word. It's just as we will always need to know more from Isaiah 6. And so as we come to it, I want to look at three main ideas. The holiness of God, the sinfulness of Isaiah, and then the mercy of the Father. And so please stand with me now as we read from God's Word. Isaiah chapter 6, starting at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on, upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory." And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. We've talked about King Uzziah, just a little bit of background uh, before we move on. We've talked about King Uzziah on and off as we've gone through the first five chapters of this book, so I want to get reacquainted with him quickly. I think it has a lot to do with this passage, particularly the sin that changed the life of King Uzziah so drastically. So turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter twenty-six. Second Chronicles chapter twenty-six. And I'm going to be reading from verse sixteen and forward. But the first part of that chapter basically details Uzziah's reign. He reigned for quite a long time. He was particularly prosperous in many ways. And then it kind of goes on talking in the chapter about how he was successful in battle, how he fortified the city and trained his troops for battle. And, and the time of, Isaiah, or time of Uzziah's reign is considered a particularly prosperous time for the, for the nation of Israel. And so Uzziah is a little bit uh, proud of his accomplishments. And so we start here at verse 16. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn the incense of the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out from the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. 
And I, Ezariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out, because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper till the day of his death, and, be, and being a leper, lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah from first to last, Isaiah the prophet, son of Amos, wrote, And Uzziah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in a burial field that belonged to the kings, for they said, He is a leper. And Jotham his son reigned in his place. So, Uzziah, who was very proud of his accomplishments as a king, walked into the temple, desecrated the temple with his presence there, and the Lord struck him down with leprosy. And for the rest of his life, he lived with this by himself. He was taken away from his duties as king, and he was even buried in a field. And they said of him when he was buried, he was a leper. Nothing to do with his kingship or anything else. Don't miss that the fact that the vision of Isaiah takes place in the temple of the Lord. And it was in the year that King Uzziah died that the Lord came to him. Isaiah is gaining a glimpse here of the heavenly temple and is seeing the throne room of God in all of its splendor. And so that brings me here to the first point, the holiness of God. Verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 6. The year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. So what did he see, or how did he see this? We have to be careful here because we live in a day with lots of people claiming to have seen many things. Isaiah is seeing this vision of the heavenly temple. However, today, in today's world, and this has been years, but it still carries with it a lot of weight, people in car accidents and little boys who were close to death have claimed to see heaven and all these other things from heaven. Talked about Jesus, and you've all heard of these books, I'm sure, and you may have even read them. There's even another who's claimed to have spent some time in hell and had a vision of that, you know. So people just see things. So how do we know that Isaiah here is telling the truth? And these other people probably aren't. How do we know? Because God's word is true. And it tells us what we need to know. We can trust that Isaiah saw what he's talking about. It becomes even easier for us to trust this when we read similar accounts elsewhere in the scriptures. Todd read from Revelation 4, which we'll go back to in a moment. We see a similar vision. We see similar things going on. They affirm to us that these things are real. The point needs to be made because we live in a day where people turn away from listening to the truth and they wander off into their own myths. So we need to stand firm in the truth of God's word. We don't need any other accounts of heaven. The throne was high and lifted up. Isaiah sees this throne. It's high and lifted up. It's high above all of its other surroundings. I read or used to read a lot of fantasy literature, and so when I, when I hear this, I get this picture of this fantasy kind of throne room, and the throne is just set above everything else. 
You know this, uh, the kind of the stage that the throne is on called the dais and the, the throne is up above everything and everything else is lower. It is a special kind of chair that the king or the queen or both can sit in and they can see all of their subjects there in the throne room. What's the purpose? To separate the thing, the throne, from all the other chairs. To separate those who sit upon the throne from all the other people. It's to make them different. The thing that, the one that sits on the throne is not the same as the ones that don't. The robe, as we read from Isaiah, the robe filled the temple. And not just the floor around the the throne, the temple. There was no place to go in that temple to get away from the presence of the one who sat upon the throne. He, the one on the throne, was not at all like Isaiah, nor was he like the creatures that were around him. He was completely different, completely other. What about those creatures? We read that these angels that were, or these seraphim that were around the throne, they had six wings. With two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. These were acts of worship. And with the other two, they flew. And they called out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. They are saying these things to each other. They are actually singing them to each other. Kind of, you get this idea that there is, they have filled this, the temple with these words. So turn with me quickly to, uh, to Revelation chapter 4. Remember I said before we got through Isaiah, we might end up quoting this entire book of Revelation as well. A lot of similar imagery. Revelation 4, and I'll start there at verse 6. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second one like an ox, the third the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around and within, the day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before Him, saying, Worthy are You, O Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. Holy, holy, holy. When we read these words, this repetition, these, this three word, you see this a lot in the Old Testament, the repetition. Basically, this is saying to you, this is important. Look at this. Once and twice wasn't enough. We needed a third time to bring across the importance. And what is this holiness? Well, we've already talked about it. In a way, God, the one on the throne, wasn't like the others. He was different. 
And if you had any doubt, the 24 elders in Revelation bring us more clarity. Worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power. For you, God, created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. Can anyone or anything else make that claim about themselves? Not even close. Everything else is created. No, all glory, honor, and power belong to Him. He created all things and He holds all things together. He is much different than anything and everything else. That is holiness. A complete distinction from those things around you. The holy things stand out. God stands out. And He had strange creatures all around Him that sang about it over and over. Holiness is so different that you can't help but notice it and comment on it if you're even able to speak at all. It stands out so much that it has an effect on everyone around it. So how do you think Isaiah would react when he comes face to face with the holiness of Almighty God? Well, we get that account. That brings me to the second point, the sinfulness of Isaiah. Verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 6. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So Isaiah hears a voice. The whole temple shakes and is filled with smoke. Isaiah is not unfamiliar with the uh, signs and the words concerning judgment. Smoke and shaking are typically a couple of those. And so he is seeing this holiness. He's seeing the signs all around him. It's just like the boys on Lord of the Flies who see this thing on the beach and they can't believe their eyes and it completely causes them to... Their whole existence, everything that they were doing just resets and becomes shattered. Isaiah is just like that. We've read about the people of Israel as we've gone through the first five chapters of this book. Their wealth and their greed, their unholy living. And how God, through Isaiah, had pronounced this series of woes on them. We read that last week, right? Remember the woes. God was going to... Answer the people with his own brand of justice. Israel's judgment would be just and it would be swift. Remember, God said he was going to whistle and the enemies would come in and they would sweep in and take Judah out completely. Isaiah knows all of this. So how does he react when he comes face to face with the holiness of God? Verse 6 or verse 5. And I said... Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me, for I am lost. Or another way of thinking about it or translating it would be, I am cut off. I am undone. I am finished. He just pronounced several woes on the people of Judah in chapter 5. Now he finishes the job and he pronounces woe upon himself. Why is he cut off? Why is he lost? He says, For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. 
Ralph, the character in Lord of the Flies, doesn't realize how dirty he had become from living on the island until he sees something really clean at the end. And he looks at himself and he finally realizes his own filth and dirty. Isaiah realizes his sin and his unholiness when he comes face to face with righteousness and goodness and holiness. And he had no answer. So church, what is our standard for holiness? You know, because it's really easy to point fingers at other people, at other churches, other husbands and wives, someone else's kids, and establish that as our standard of holiness. The sole purpose behind it being, of course, to make ourselves look better, look like the one that's on the throne, filling the temple with our own glory. You know, here's some examples. Well, I'm not that bad. And you may point at somebody or something or see something on the news and, whew, thank goodness I'm not like that. We get that little surge of pride, just like when Uzziah walked into the temple, almost thinking he deserved to be there somehow. Well, those other churches, they don't have anything on us. I mean, just look at all the bad they're doing and look at all the good things that we're doing. That's an easy one to do. Look at those kids. I wish someone would raise them right. And of course, right is a synonym for like me. We don't understand our own unholiness. Turn with me to Luke chapter 5. This is almost... An exact kind of story found in the New Testament. And of course we would expect Peter to be the subject of that story. Luke chapter 5 starting at verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. This is talking about our Lord Jesus. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them. And they were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them, and they filled both boats so that they both began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. Peter comes face to face with someone who is nothing at all like himself. Peter was a fisherman, thought he knew fishing, hadn't caught anything all night. We haven't caught anything all night, but since you say to let out the nets, we'll do it. 
having no idea what he was getting into, he quickly realizes that while he was a fisherman, he was standing next to the creator of the fish. The one who speaks and every fish jumps into the net. The one who had command over all the fish. They listened to him. Peter obviously had no command of the fish. He realizes this. His response is the only right response against the only standard there is. The sinless Savior, Jesus Christ. He realizes his sin, which is great, infinite, compared to that of Jesus. Compared to his buddies, he may have been fine. But compared to Jesus, his only recourse was to get on his face and beg Jesus to go away. So church, again, I'll ask you, what is our standard for holiness? If it's not Jesus, it's the wrong standard. And when you see your sin next to the sinlessness of Christ, there is one correct response. Humble submission. The right fear of God. Knowing that He could and He should strike you down. There is no reason for God to show Isaiah the vision or for Jesus to fill the nets full of fish. In fact, there is no reason for Jesus to have come at all. Everything after Genesis 3 and the sin of man is due to his own unceasing mercy and the love that he has for his people, a stiff-necked people like ourselves. Had he destroyed Adam and Eve after their sin and all of creation with it, he would have been completely just in doing so. But he had a plan from the foundations of the earth and he set his people aside for himself a different kind of people for himself. He intended to save those people for himself and make them holy. And that brings me to the mercy of the Father. Verses 6 and 7, back in Isaiah chapter 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. So one of those creatures flies over, retrieves a lump of hot coal from the altar, and brings it to Isaiah. This part always kind of makes me cringe a little bit because being burned is kind of a rough and painful thing that we're all familiar with. And lips are one of the most sensitive parts in your body, and I can't imagine... Hot coal in the mouth. That would be really rough. It's a very powerful kind of image. The lips are very powerful as well, are they not? Just watch the news. People go down every day for the stupid things that they say. And Isaiah has already said, Who is he? A man of unclean lips. So the Lord had his lips cleansed, but with fire. And when the fire touched his lips, he spoke, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Why did God do that? Couldn't he have just made it so? Couldn't he have just said, your sin is atoned for, and not actually burn the mouth of Isaiah? Or better yet, the other end of the spectrum, couldn't he have just killed Isaiah outright? 
I mean, he did deserve death. He was a covenant breaker. He had already said he was a man of unclean lips, sinned with his lips, perhaps cursing God or some other sin that God said that would not be held guiltless. Couldn't he have just taken away instead? Sure. All that sin had to be what though? What's the word there? Atoned for. There had to be a payment for it. There had to be something to make right the wrongs that had been done. For Isaiah, his mouth was cleansed with fire. A painful reminder to the prophet about the words that he says. So if the sins of the mouth could be paid for with fire, what about the sins that he was born with? What about the sins that were inherent in his being as Isaiah and all the others who were born, including ourselves? That's going to take something else entirely to atone for those sins. In fact, another person would have to be born who did not have that inherent sin. And they would have to be a sacrifice. Their whole self. That's where Jesus comes in. The white hot coal of God's justice consumed Jesus Christ as He hung on the cross for our sins. Though we deserved to be struck down and destroyed. We deserved to be cut off like Isaiah. Instead, it was Jesus who was struck down. Instead, it was Jesus Christ who was cut off. And when He was cut off, you and I, as His people, were cut back in. We were added to the flock. We received this eternal reward. Thankfully, it's not a reward for all that we've done, which is a whole heap of sin. Nothing good at all. It's a reward for all that He has done. Everything that we've done deserves death. But instead, we get life. Everything that He did deserved life. But instead, He got death. And He is risen. He is at the right hand of the Father. Because of that, we, His people, His church, we are taken care of. We are blessed. And so in conclusion, we are a people of unclean lips. We live among a people of unclean lips. You can say that with Isaiah pretty accurately. We deserve death. But in Christ, we have life. So brothers and sisters, in Christ, church, how are we going to live that life? We are called to be holy. And we've seen what people do when they come face to face with holy. They change. It changes them. Will we live in such a way to cause others to see the works that we do and praise the Father in heaven for it? Let us be holy as He is holy. And when we can't, which is most of the time, let us cling to Jesus Christ, the Holy One of Israel. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to You, we know that we are called to live holy. We are called to be different, but we struggle with that. We are a people of unclean lips. we That is the least of our struggles many times. We are a people of unclean many things. And so, Lord, we come to You for mercy and for grace. We come to You for wisdom. We daily need Your guidance. We don't understand our own sin, much less the sin of this world. And so, Lord, we pray that You would help us. 
that you would grow us, that you would make us more and more like yourself, even in spite of us, so that the world might see and know that you are God for your glory alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.